Welcome to A Virtual View, a telehealth podcast brought to you by the Upper Midwest Telehealth Resource Center. Today, I'm joined by Sarah Swank, health attorney of Nixon Peabody in Washington, D.C. Sarah, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, thank you for having me today. Yeah, and this isn't your first podcast, is it? It isn't. I guess I didn't mean to be the podcast queen, but just like you, I somehow... (laughs) I'm out speaking more and more on. Thank you for adding ours to your list. Could you introduce yourself to our audience a little bit? Yeah, so I am Sarah Swink. I'm a healthcare attorney. I've been a healthcare attorney for 23 something years in there. And I have, I would say I'm a traditional healthcare attorney and then I do regulatory and corporate work. But I would say I'm not a traditional healthcare attorney because I am driven um, a lot by what I think are innovations, changes, and improvements in healthcare. And not that I think I'm the only one. I think a lot of people are. But when we talk about where my interests lie and where I go, you'll see that the clients and the people that I'm working with are really trying to push where healthcare delivery is going. So I have to admit, looking at health and healthcare from a more legal perspective, that's not something that I've really done before. It's not my first thought when I think of healthcare. So what does being a health attorney entail? Yeah. So for a health attorney, it's funny because it's one of those things like what attorneys do is you're, let's say you're at an event and someone asks you what you do and you say, I'm in healthcare. And then you say, mm-hmm. what do you do? And then you say, are you a nurse? No. Are you a doctor? No. Are you a pharmacist? No. And then you say, I'm an attorney. And they say, oh, are you a malpractice lawyer? And they're like, no, <laughs> I'm not that either. So what do we do? There's a lot of regulations. This was easy. Uh, you know, you wouldn't need me. Right. Honestly, like with every like advice you give, there could be thousands of pages of like regulations and law and that sit behind behind that. And mm-hmm. but what I think, so there's that part of it. Healthcare's are healthcare is, has corporations. A lot of it, some of it's public, but a lot mm-hmm. of it's private. And so we have those regulations overlapping with a private industry in a country. And mm-hmm. then we have, you know, federal dollars that come in. And so we've got Medicare and Medicaid laws. We are United States, we've got in these federal laws, but we also have state laws. So it's, it gets complicated really fast, but I think, but I think, what do I do? I try to help understand what people's visions are, try to navigate all that's going on. Maybe sometimes Mm -hmm. even get out ahead of it with health policy and try to make sure that care is being delivered in the United States in in the way it should. And for clients, what I'm, I say is I'm, I, my favorite things to do are to build things, right? Like I love Mm -hmm. sitting and helping to build things. But the other thing I do with like compliance and otherwise is to help people do the right thing, right? Like to complying with the laws is the right thing to do, right? And if there's times where it's in the gray, which happens a lot, well, especially in telehealth, right? That's, it's oh, changing yeah. so fast, mm-hmm. is to figure out what can we mitigate? Where's the risk on this? What does the program look like? What are the details that make it go into compliance? Because it's if you're on the cutting edge of healthcare, you're not trying to go out and break the laws, but there's some of the laws might have not caught up where, where you're trying to head. And mm-hmm. so that those are my favorite projects to work on are with people that are really have a passion and a drive towards changing healthcare and healthcare delivery, especially using technology and people in an innovative way and then helping them navigate it. And right. that, those are my favorite. So that's what a healthy lawyer goes. I think a really good health care lawyer also becomes an advisor, has mm-hmm. business knowledge and acrimony, hopefully, and seen enough deals, seen enough this or that to say, Hey, by the way, do you want to do it that way? Like you could. And I think th- those are also some of my favorite moments when we're having these really great strategy t- talk- talks and trying to figure out how do we do things best. Or- Very cool. So you talked that you're involved with telehealth. How's that something you became interested in? Was that deliberate? Yeah, it's so interesting. So I tripped into health law. I didn't know what kind of attorney I wanted to be. 
Um, there's a lot of us that came out of that time frame. There wasn't as many laws back then to even <laughs> comply with. So you tripped into the health law. And then yeah. I was a government psych major, if anyone out there is fascinated by my majors. But I was obviously drawn towards healthcare in that I was thinking I'd be a clinician myself, right? Like I was thinking about going and becoming a psychologist and, and just left that behind and thought I'd be an attorney. And then here comes you know, health law. So where did telehealth come into it? I think some of my first projects where I was drawn and I was interested in them was watching some of the first technology go into like managed care in New York and watching the change of people trying to get data out of these really archaic systems and things really being on paper and trying yeah. to figure out how do we care better for these patients. And I gravitated to that. And then I think my first real exposure to telehealth as we think of it today was I was in-house at a hospital that was really trying to figure out how do we get like a specialist to see a patient or something when there's like a lot of traffic in DC, for example? Yeah. Or it could be the office in the rural uh, community. It could be, how do I get, do I have to drive two and a half hours? Like it could be two and a half hours in traffic or no traffic. It's still difficult if you have to try to get to somebody and how do we solve that? Or if you have a very specialized, like in the hospital visit, like with a pediatrician, how do we get the doctor across the traffic? Maybe right. that's not going to yeah. make sense. Or the big long distance to get to the patient. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I got involved. And I used to joke that things were rolling down hallways. Like <laughs> it was not the same as it is now. And really what I would say is I've always this, but it's the technology that's changed. And now we can say the laws have changed, the reimbursements changed, but the concept hasn't. And that's how I got involved. And then why I stayed passionate in it and really gravitated again to trying to work with people that are trying to do this was because personally, I saw it as so many opportunities in it, even when there was no money in it, right? Like at some point there was right. a lot of payment in it and people were trying to figure out, do I go to employers? Do I just do this because it's actually keeping costs down and admissions out of hospitals? Down? Like, why am I doing it? I still thought, gosh, look at the benefit of this. And I even remember going to the American Telemedicine Association and it was one of the first speakers that said, I'm seeing all the, there's lots of legal barriers, right? That was a lot of the thing yeah. to talk about telehealth. And I said, but look at what's happening with the Affordable Care Act, ACOs, population health. And yet at the same time, isn't that like telehealth that kind of helps with some of this work? Yeah. And um, just came out and said, I don't think you should be scared of the laws as much. And don't use that as an <laughs> excuse, right? Like it's an opportunity right. and a barrier, but let's see what we can do. And so that, that's where, how I got involved in, and why I've stayed involved. Now it's so exciting. I don't even so much going on in this space. So we talked a little bit about the fact that there's legal challenges associated with telehealth specifically. What are some of those specific legal challenges? I think the first, you know, I think I, I said this, but I really hit it home. The first one was there was no reimbursement for a lot of this. Right. So it's like, where do you get funded for or why are you doing it? And not to say that the money drives, drives everything, but at some point you have to say it, it's a cost. And honestly, if not, not enough people are doing it, it's hard to get the data to show it's effective even. I think the other barrier that you hear a lot is around licensure, right? Like the idea of if I want to do this in 50 states, which we get this a lot, like in my firm at Nixon, like I want to do this in 50 states. But can't be, like, how are we going to, what's the licensing strategy? Or what, and that got even more wild during COVID in the pandemic oh, yeah. <laughs> in the public health emergency because all the states were doing different licensing. They were changing their licensing as we were going. Mm -hmm. And even if you're not saying, I want to do 50 states, your patients may be in a tri-state area because you're on the edge of a state somewhere. Your patients might have decided that they wanted to go visit a family during this public health emergency. Maybe they needed to go stay with family. 
Or maybe they said, hey, I just want to go on vacation for two <laughs> weeks and just go to somewhere warm. I, you don't know. Right. And so there you are. Like, And are you properly licensed to talk to that person as they're moving? Or honestly, as again, we'll go back to not just the patient's move, the people, the providers move, the physicians, the, now it's even bigger, social work, telepsychiatry, they can move too. They might decide mm-hmm. they want to take a two-week vacation and half of that they'll work remotely out of wherever, you know, while they're visiting family in a confidential space. And can they do that? Are they licensed to do that? And licensure becomes a huge, huge can become a huge barrier. We figured out how to do it. It's a lot of work. There's a lot of people that say, why don't we have like a compact on this, like the nursing compact or some like national standards? But we're not there yet. We've been saying that yeah. for 10 years. Those are like the two biggest ones that you hear a lot. And there's other ones too, because we've got now, which is really exciting, like the opportunity to have other people besides physicians. It used to be telemedicine. That meant mm-hmm. doctors. It's not. Yep. It's all kinds of clinicians, which is really great. They all have their own scope of their license and what they can and can't do. And so now we have to think about, and who can supervise them? Who needs to be watching their work? Who needs to be overseeing them? And each of those are state by state. So you may be able to have a nurse do something here or um, like an LPN or some other category and you have to go, huh, the right people, could they say that or do they need to be scripted? Are they a health coach? Are they a nurse? Are they a doctor? And so even that concept of telehealth is so exciting, but Mm -hmm. a big legal barrier where we're really having to think through things are corporate practice and medicine, scope of license. Um, and scope of supervision requirements within the state. And some, again, those, some of those got waived during the pandemic, but those waivers are coming in and out. And some yeah. of those things have stuck. Some things are not going to change. A lot of these laws mm-hmm. were set up like in a traditional brick and mortar sense. They weren't set up for telehealth necessarily. Yeah. So an emerging field in telehealth and really technology in general is artificial intelligence. And I understand, is that an area of interest for you? It is, absolutely. Yeah. I would assume that AI is something that for a whole host of reasons might come with some very interesting legal questions. Yeah, and AI is very interesting because there's not a lot of regulation around it if you look at it from a national level and mm-hmm. that, or even a global level. We're seeing the regulations of it in the other countries like in Europe. Mm-hmm. But what I think is interesting about it is artificial intelligence is not that regulated. And yet we're looking at, if you look at what we say about where we need to be with it as a country, like as our like economics of our country, which includes healthcare as one of those economic factors, mm-hmm. it's a priority. So yeah. it's, and obviously healthcare is something that's a huge part of our budget in the United States. It's a huge part of our economy. And yeah. so it naturally makes sense that like, we're gonna wanna promote some level of artificial intelligence. And so that, uh, it's interesting. Some people say, how did you, you know, get involved in artificial intelligence? It's not like I knew 10 years ago that I was going to be thinking about artificial intelligence necessarily. <laughs> I mean, I could have predicted some of it. There's some of it that's in there. But what I think is interesting, it's the natural flow of the use of data and technology to care for patients or to transform processes in healthcare. Just mm-hmm. as it could, inf- it could transform processes in any industry or even our daily lives. A good example of this is, Bots. So bots, a lot of people say bots aren't artificial intelligence, but if we're going to use this broadest definition, because the definition is all over the place of how we think about it. If you said, when I get healthcare, a little text message is going to show up and then it's going to talk to me and then I'm going to go do something. We would all say, gosh, that's like inhumane. I might not feel cared about. I might not like it. Now go look at COVID testing. 
and right. how we got bots that said, do you have this system? Do you have that? And then it directed you to something to do. Maybe it was a telehealth visit. Maybe it was mm-hmm. to go to your doctor. Maybe it was to go to testing. And we were not offended by that. So we mm-hmm. can see how when that starts getting integrated into care delivery or even the back-end processes and EHRs and getting real-time data out, there's some real opportunities there. But legally, we have to look at the laws that, kind of, that exist now and frame this new technology over it, which sounds a lot like the like telehealth or telemedicine a long time ago. A lot of laws were out there. And so we have to take this technology and say, what is the framework? And how does that framework of our laws, is it working or not working based on this technology? I think where artificial intelligence is a little bit different than telehealth is it's got such widespread use outside of even healthcare, mm-hmm. like that, that it's not just a healthcare thing. It is something yeah. that would be transformative to a lot of different parts of our lives. Yeah, it's the next big horizon in technology. But you talked about bots and stuff. And I was reminded like two days ago, I got a message from my dentist reminding me to come in with one of those like AI systems. And then I got one from my GP as well. And I'm like, wow, five or 10 years ago, I wouldn't even have thought that this was possible, but it's just become so commonplace recently that we don't even think twice about it. But something else you mentioned that I wanted to talk about was you mentioned how healthcare is a huge part of the sort of market or the economic landscape of the United States. And I think that's very true because it's one of those things that you you really can't get away from. Everybody engages in health to some extent during their life, obviously. So I know this is a very broad question, but with the development of other new technologies, even aside from AI, do you think there are any legal or ethical issues that might stand out to you as things we're going to need to confront as we continue to have this huge development of new health technologies? Yeah, I think for me, what and I'll use artificial intelligence as a place to think about this. Sure. It could be it could be a lot of places. But really what is when I first started going out and talking about artificial intelligence as an attorney, there weren't a lot of lawyers out there talking about it because there wasn't a lot of laws out there. So you're trying to talk about navigating certain laws. But what I one of the things I would hit home is the ethics behind it, the morals behind it. And when you look at the ethics and morals of artificial intelligence, you're looking at data. Mm -hmm. And even if it's whether it's a data that's a pixel and how many pixels there are to be able to look at a breast cancer scan to see whether there's breast cancer and the computer's looking at it and or whether they're like looking at other processes, you're taking data out of our healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And even if you look at the, there was a NIST report, NIS, NIST, but people in telehealth probably know who they are. But they, they said, we think there's bias. Where does this bias come from? They come from, healthcare's part of our society. It's part of systems. Mm-hmm. And who comes and access healthcare? That's the data that's in the system. How mm-hmm. we track it is how it's in the system. How we ask about it, it's in the system. And having talked to data scientists who think about the world way differently than I do as an attorney, say there's so information in there. We could be doing all these great things. Of course, we have laws and things that say maybe you can, maybe you can't. We also have the way our system is structured, which is system by system. It's not like a big national system where all this data is getting pulled into it, right? So we've got that. And then we've got, again, like our biases. Mm-hmm. And so a really good example of that is if we look at clinical research. Well, research is done. It gives us evidence-based medicine. It proves our drugs and devices. It's like a process we get through. And at the end of it, we've got some product that can be used under the market. It could be a, a, a drug or it could be a new way to care for patients, whatever that research 
But if you don't have people of different diverse backgrounds in every way of that, underserved communities, in every way we can think about that, do we really know if that science is correct? And so I would say artificial intelligence, you could say, okay, we've seen it really work well in clinical research. Where did it work? There, it can be helpful in being able to identify patients that might meet a criteria for a study. It might be really good at screening only for those patients that are actually in the EHR. If you right. are somebody <laughs> who did not want to go to the to the emergency room or go to a doctor because of the systematic biases that may exist in our world, then mm -hmm. you're not in there. Or if you're in a location, maybe it's a rural location, maybe it's an underserved community in an urban location, maybe you don't even get clinical research near you. And so mm -hmm. you're not in the system till you looked at. Then we have, so then that data is in naturally, inherently biased towards the, what's in there. And the research can, could be then biased. And there's re researchers that are trying to think about this. The FDA has put out for the last year saying, you need to have equity in your clinical, and you can throw all the AI you want over it, and it won't necessarily fix that problem. But there, mm -hmm. I do think there's hope in AI. If we understand that when AI gets built, we can build it with biased. Mm -hmm. that we can understand the systems and try to figure out if we can break the bias, you know, and build that in. But if we now take this moment and build the AI based off of the people that are going to end up coding it, the people that are putting the input in, the data that we have, we may actually bake our biases into the future generations. And that's the part that I think is the biggest barrier. And that's that goes beyond legal. That goes beyond ethics. That goes beyond what where do we want what do we want our country to look like in the future, and what do we want healthcare to? Look like? I think that's such an important point because I feel like a lot of people do look down at data and be like it's just data, and don't take into account that there are like biases and what have you like involved in putting that data together. One of the things that I do find most exciting about telehealth, aside from the fact that <laughs> I can go to the doctor in my pajamas, is the potential utility in the field of health equity, like you said. So I know you have an interest in health equity as well. Do you think that telehealth can have a role in prom promoting future health? I think it does because you, if it can provide more access right? Mm -hmm. In that way. Like when we look at health equity and even just defining what health equity means, we're looking at what we underserved communities. So if you look at CMS's health equity plan, mm -hmm. you'll see a lot of the laws around access are in there and they still sit on the books, but clearly they haven't completely eliminated some of the issues just because those laws are sitting there. So it's, it, it is a reframing uh, of that. And when we, and defining what underserved means, helps too. So it's, it is, it, it can be race, it can be gender, it can be your rural, it could be, it can be a lot of different areas. And it's, what's interesting is, is there a solution that can solve that fact that those are all underserved communities? I tell us could be one of those that serves just to, to cut across what we are defining as underserved communities, which may have some things in common and may not. So like mm -hmm. here, but where a barrier would sit and where the health equity also sits is we don't always have digital health equity. So we say, yes, it's going to help us. But if we don't have digital health equity in that, we mean that we have these really cool, fancy things we're doing like telehealth or femtech where you've got like a phone and you can have a device and you can track things. There's all these really cool innovations happening. But if they, if you don't have access to them, we're actually creating what they call a digital divide. 
We're actually right. making it worse for everybody or some people. And so we look at broadband, right? There was a, this administration's putting out grants for states to look at like what they call the internet for all. And they have mm-hmm. specifically called out healthcare as one of those areas. And education is surprisingly not another one in the economics, just general economics. So, so that's really important. If you can't actually get to it, like you, you don't actually have access to it. If you are somebody who has a hard time using the technology, then you don't have meaningful access. And I think we saw that with signing up for vaccines. There's just some people that like, and this wasn't even telehealth, were like, I can't use this system. I will tell you, I had a hard time using this. It was not always <laughs> user-friendly, no offense. I know people had to throw them up quickly. There wasn't use- so some people just called. I'm just mm-hmm. going to make like, a phone call because I, every time I try to do something, someone else has taken my appointment and I, I'm having a hard time doing this. So it's digital health equity isn't just, it is broad, but digital literacy, it's, and it's also like cultural competency. Am I somebody who would want to use it or not? It's absolutely a good thing for everybody. It might be like, yeah, it's a good thing, but we need to be culturally competent to know certain people are going to want to access it in this situation versus another. And we can't just assume with our biases that whatever we want to do to access it is going to be the right answer. So there there's a lot of equity that comes into this, but there's so much opportunity too. We shouldn't just say, not everyone can have it, so we're not going to do it. No, I think it's the opposite. Like, how do we knock down the barriers that are, are around the access to it so mm-hmm. that we can get those other, because it, like, it's not just healthcare too, right? If it's an internet thing, it literally might be school. It literally might be able to start a business or do, you know, and that's not right. Yeah, I think there's just, a, there's a ton of opportunity in it. And just so people know, like, why does a lawyer care about health equity? I care personally, but <laughs> right, it's a, a passion of mine. But legally, we're watching this. It's going to get baked into how we get paid. It's going to get baked into quality measures that we don't have mm-hmm. right now. It's going to get baked into transparency laws and things that go on to like forward facing websites about this is how much you cost. This is your quality. And, and if your quality scores include health equity scores, and access scores, then it's going to be apparent to everybody. So I, I think, and then honestly, like access laws still are out there and whether they're used or not used, there's a lot of potential for enforcement around some of the things that are already sitting on the books, Never mind them getting picked back up and looked at in a digital way, not right. just look at it like, oh, I walk into a building and I can't get into the building. That's not good. But how right. about I can't <laughs> walk into my platform and I can't see it? So mm-hmm. how am I supposed to navigate my telehealth visit when I can't, I can't see it? And that's just as much of a barrier to access. And so looking at these a- platforms access and saying, can I really do this? Do an access audit on it in the way. Now, if you really think you have a problem, do it with a lawyer, but do it. Go look at it. Say, do I really, am I really meeting these requirements? Yes, it could be the right thing to do, but honestly, you could, you will need to do it. Yeah, but I really like the point that Telehealth is not the way we fix health equity. It is one tool and a lot of different tools we're going to have to use to improve that. Because I have read studies about the utilization rates of telehealth, particularly during the pandemic, and I was very surprised at how much they compared to just rates of traditional healthcare utilization and how close they were. I expected folks in rural populations or other disadvantaged populations to be taking more advantage of it, but a lot of times, like you said, the tools just aren't there. Yeah, it's, it's, I think you're absolutely right. It's like, it is, we, have big, we have issues that are bigger than this. Like someone was getting 
interviewed for an article around modern healthcare, around like behavioral health and telehealth and hospitals betting behavioral health startups, right? Because there's a lot of people going mm -hmm. into the market. Right. And at the end, I just, I couldn't leave it there, but I, all I could think, you need to vet them. You need to like, we need to have more behavioral health access in every way, addiction, mental health. But at the end of the day, one hospital system is not going to solve this problem. Right. Even 20 hospital systems, even 20 startups. This is so big of an issue around access and care that we need to think about it as a country. We can think about it at a state level too. I'm not saying you can't like focus on a state, like a governor could say, this is a, a, a state emergency. We need to look at it, that too. But it's just the idea that we're gonna one off it and that's gonna solve the behavioral health problem by using telehealth, or we shouldn't trust the people in the behavioral health industry going into telehealth. I don't think either of those are true. I think that you need to vet it and do due diligence, but I also think it's gonna solve the entire problem of it because we're looking at the continuum of care. And yeah, you can try to solve some things for people to be at home, but sometimes you actually do need to go into a facility. Sometimes you need to, because that is actually gonna heal you better, like both yeah. mentally, physically, in whatever way. And I don't think we've figured out that quite right. What's that ratio? What does that look like? And what does that look like for each specialty or each mm -hmm. care setting or each care protocol? And so I think you're right. I think people needed their healthcare there was definitely delay care. People are using telehealth right now to patch that de delay care because they can't mm -hmm. get everyone back into the office. They really literally can't, but the people are trying. So I think the utilization might have looked the same, but we know that there's delayed care. Mm -hmm. Especially when we look at like screenings and other testing and our wellness visits. And so, yeah, I think it's quite interesting. Yeah, I don't think it's just, it's not gonna, our, our healthcare problems, but it is a tool in our toolkit to, to start working on it because we do have, we've got a lot of work to do. And then I guess, unfortunately, or fortunately, the pandemic put a lot of things to light that was really good about our healthcare system, like mm -hmm. science, innovation, and use of technology and our actual healthcare workforce out there and doing amazing things. But it also gave to light like the systematic biases we have, the mm -hmm. problems, the people falling out of, how easy it is to fall out of our system and get lost. So I have a telehealth, I don't think, I don't think we should lose sight of it. If we're going to have gone through something really not great as a country, let's figure out what we learned from it and what we found out was great. And if telehealth is there, I hope we, I don't think we'll lose sight of them, but I hope we do. Yeah, I do think it is important to keep it in perspective, like you said, where we're not saying that telehealth is like the entire solution. Like it feels a lot like someone's telling you to build a house and then giving you telehealth and it's like a screwdriver. It's like, I need other tools too. This is an important one, but it can't be the only one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's it's interesting because even looking through this, telehealth had a certainly, we had the these different definitions. Like I'm a lawyer, we love words, or at least I do, and definitions. <laughs> and so we look at like the evolving definition and I love language. So our mm -hmm. language has to evolve too. Like mm -hmm. the word health equity is, is new health justice. And it, it, in some ways, it empowers some people and it puts off other people, which is very interesting. But when mm -hmm. you tell them, like, what does that mean? I've never had somebody say, gosh, that doesn't seem right. We shouldn't. You're right. Why wouldn't somebody have access to health, telehealth? Or right. if I say to somebody, gosh, there's times you just, you actually need to be in a hospital or you need to be in a setting like, like in a surgery center. Or mm -hmm. when you explain it like that, people will go, oh yeah, that makes sense. So some mm -hmm. of this is, we have this great wording and we have these great words that are changing in it, even telehealth. Mm -hmm. But sometimes we just, 
get away from these academic words and just talk about what it really is because it is a day-to-day thing in our lives. We have to, either we or somebody we in our lives is usually engaging in some kind of healthcare interaction at some point. It's not, and and we like sometimes in healthcare overcomplicate it with all our terminology <laughs> and including telehealth or bots or AI. What does that really mean? So maybe mm-hmm. telehealth will get evolved because we've got virtual visits now and this, and it's just all these different phrases. But the idea is you don't get lost in the shovel and you don't mm-hmm. get sick without somebody knowing about it, hopefully, and that you're hopefully you're getting care and hopefully you're not using the emergency room as your main care source that you're getting the right place. Uh, Yeah, I agree with that. I really do. I know we touched on a lot of this already, but one question I like to ask is, what do you think the future of telehealth looks like? Yes, I've always like worked on telehealth, so I always saw the potential of it. And I've said, gosh, it got, some people say it got pushed five years in the future. To me, it felt like 20 because the reimbursement changed, (laughs) right? The licensure has it, but the reimbursement changed. So I think I will say wherever the technology goes, whether that's AI, all that, I think that's where telehealth looks. So when I would first go out and do telehealth speeches, I had to explain what telemedicine was and telehealth was a new concept because it was more Mm -hmm. than doctors. And I would have to define it and try to explain it. And people would look at me and go, that's so interesting. Wow, that's so cutting edge. And then give it a couple of years later, I was saying, yeah, and you could do it on your iPad. Because there was an iPad. We didn't have iPads. Then we had, because it was webcams before. It was like, I didn't like I didn't have a camera in my laptop before, but now I need it every day. I don't know a hundred percent what it will look like mm-hmm. in that way, but I do know it will evolve as technology evolves. What I'm seeing out in the market is it being what we call like a virtual care integration is happening, where people mm-hmm. are trying to marry what we call like bricks and mortar going into a building to not going into a building and doing it some other way. And whether that's a text reminder, appointment reminder, whether that's a coach call, because they can tell your glucose got to a certain thing and someone calls, whatever that, I think that's where we're, that's where we're headed. So I don't think telehealth will be the simple telehealth. I think it will be integrated in and we'll have to figure out how that looks, if that changes the care protocols and if it changes reimbursement. But I don't, given the federal laws are going to stick, then and reimbursement's going to stay around. If those things are all true, then it looks, it, yeah, it looks it, it like it becomes part of our care delivery. Mm-hmm. Which I think is very exciting. It is. And again, we just don't lose sight of the leaving people behind part of it. Right. We don't get so excited that we go, we forget that there are other people out there that we might be, we might be missing. And I think one more other thing to add out there that I'm, you know, we see a lot is that, you know, what we talked about data and is like the value of data mm-hmm. and our laws around not being able to sell data, and, but yet the value of it and the compliance mm-hmm. around that. And whether there ultimately we will be, there was talk about like an agency around AI or an mm-hmm. agency around data privacy that was agnostic <laughs> to healthcare. And so mm-hmm. those things will impact those bigger national policy issues, will what ends up being a day-to-day interaction on telehealth. So keep an eye on that. E- even if you look at the Department of Health and Human Services, they have a group looking at artificial intelligence. So it's not, even for themselves, if you look at like the office for inspector general that does the audits of healthcare payments, 
they are using AI algorithms to tr- detect fraud. So oh. just know that like the future of telehealth, I think it does look bright. We still have the laws out there. We still have national policy and other items. So it's it, it may be regulated in a different way than I can even anticipate sitting here right now uh, as well. But I do think I don't see it going away. And honestly, I didn't see it going away even in 2020 because it's, once mm-hmm. you roll something out to somebody, it's really hard in healthcare to take it away. Yeah particularly when people like how convenient it is. Yes. All right. We're coming up on time here. So is there anything else you want to touch on before I log us off, as it were? Yeah. First of all, I want to thank you so much for having me because yeah, of course. Into, I very much care about this topic. And, and I, I really hate to be the doom and gloom lawyer type on, mm-hmm. on, on these. <laughs> like sometimes people take the power, if they ever have a PowerPoint and there's like a slide with someone in jail and they're like, don't do this. And then you're like, see jail. <laughs> there are laws that actually could put you in jail in healthcare. Yes, they do exist. But I don't want people to feel stunted by it. It's If you really are feeling that stunted by it, it's, make sure you have a good attorney or make sure you have good in-house or do you know don't get stalled out by it because there there are right. things that you can do and undo it in compliant ways there's models out there and also at the other same time i would say don't go out there and just do whatever you want because right <laughs> you're it's, uh, it's on the oig work plan to audit these that there's going to be enforcement around it but also don't not do it because you're worried about being and you know, just do it the right way people are doing it the right way it's possible mm-hmm. to do it and and i think that's the message i wanted to say to everybody because when I go to conferences where there's not a lot of lawyers, just get the, are we going to get sued? Are we going to get in trouble? I just hear that. People literally say that on stages. And I just <laughs> want to say, you can figure this out. It's not, yeah. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying it is absolutely doable and it, in, in the right way. And, and also just to get out and talk to, if you have a, uh, to have a voice in this, because I think the more we get out and talk about it, the more normalized it gets, whether it's health equity or whatever you're passionate about, mm-hmm. care, virtual care, telehealth. Because the more we talk about it, the more the policymakers hear us and the yeah, more normalized so it gets. Because that's mm-hmm. how policy changes. And if you have an opportunity through your attorney or an advocate, an association, wherever you have a voice, get out there and talk and say it. Because mm-hmm. that really will make a change. If we sit quiet about these things, the change won't happen. So you, use your resources out there. Can't sit here with our fingers crossed. <laughs> Not going to just happen. I wish that's the way it worked, but it doesn't certainly be easier. Thank you so much for joining us today. I don't typically get to discuss health and healthcare from a legal perspective, so I really appreciate you coming on and touching on those topics with me today. Great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you for listening to A Virtual View. You can find more information about today's episode in the show notes below. If you would like to support our podcast, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Do you have any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss? If so, contact us at info at umtrc.org or through the form found in the show notes. Also, we'd like to give a special thanks to our editor, Tristan Yoder. Finally, a special thanks to the Health Resources and Service Administration, also known as HRSA. Our podcast series, A Virtual View, is sponsored in part by HRSA's Telehealth Resource Center program, which is under HRSA's Office of the Administrator and the Office for the Advancement of Telehealth. The content and conclusions of this podcast are those of the UMTRC and should not be construed as the official policy of or the position of, nor should any endorsements be inferred by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. Thanks for listening and have a great day.